You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology. This call was recorded at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, January 15th. All right, Dr. Minna, do you have any opening remarks? Uh, no, happy to take questions. All right, great. Um, all right, uh, first question. Hi, thanks for doing this. Um, we've heard governors and healthcare leaders expressing concern about healthcare workers not taking the COVID vaccine. Do you have any thoughts on why this appears to be an issue? Um, what could potentially be done about it to inspire confidence? And are you worried about this potentially sending a message to the general public? Well, it's a great question. Um, it's it's not directly in my domain of expertise to to you know comment on why why there's sort of a, a large group of people who are refusing. But what I would say is, um, I think uh, especially for young people, uh, there's probably some reluctance to get a vaccine. I don't know. I think some people might be doing it because they are are concerned about safety profiles um, or or something like that. But I think a lot of people. Are refusing to get a vaccine right now because they're seeing themselves as young and healthy and uh, and potentially sort of hopping in front of a, of some elderly or more vulnerable person that would necessarily otherwise or that they perceive would otherwise get the vaccine. Um, so I think that both of those two are at play for healthcare workers. Um, they're put in an interesting position of being first in line, which comes with um, which comes with some levels of of potential guilt, I suppose. Um, so, uh, I don't know that I'm too concerned about it sending a wrong message. I think at the end of the day, people are going to likely get, uh, get vaccinated. You know, we're going to see lots and lots of people end up getting vaccinated. So I think we can anticipate things will continue moving forward. Thank you. Uh, next question. Good morning, Dr. Mina. Um, I assume we'll probably get to talking about rapid tests, but I was hoping you could uh, uh, speak to the many uh, variants out there. And um, specifically, I'm curious, I, I've seen some talk of this, that um, this is, I, I don't know if to be expected is the right way to put it, but um, as the pandemic uh, continues, as you have more and more infections, infections and more and more time, um, perhaps that helps explain why we're seeing more now and curious which ones uh, might be concerning you the most. Uh, I think that the, the, from my perspective, this was, th this was a, uh, an, uh, essentially a definite that we would start to see these occur. So they shouldn't be taking anyone by surprise. Um, I like to think of viruses like software and a new virus is like software version 1.0. Uh, it would be extremely naive if we thought that for some reason that this virus was going to come out and be virus 1.0 of itself and not have any real way to uh, to improve itself. That would be that that just isn't how viruses work. Um, so, uh, in that sense, these these mutations are expected. Um, what exactly happens now with them is you know that the the, the world is this this virus's oyster, if you will. Um, it uh, has a lot of room to grow. It's showing us how plastic its spike protein is. Uh, it can continue to mutate uh, in ways that, you know, hopefully we can identify and we can predict. 
um, but but viruses have a tricky way of of finding new ways to mutate that we um, that we won't be able to predict. Uh, the the South Africa variant, for example. Well, I'd say that there's there's two. For for me, it's not what each of these individual variants represent, or it's not what they are that that is most concerning. It's really what they represent. They represent that there are more variants to come, and uh, potentially. Uh, strains that can start evading immunity once we really start bottlenecking this virus. Uh, I would say that the, the UK variant that did come about, um, that is concerning because it has just so much more, uh, it, it's speeding through population so much quicker. Uh, and that doesn't, even without increasing uh, any sort of pathogenicity, it will kill more people um, because it's going to infect more people. Uh, the South Africa variant is showing some ability to uh, evade uh, neutralizing antibodies to a certain extent. And so if we continue to see variants like that, uh, you know, that would be very, very um, damaging potentially, uh, of course. So that this brings us to sort of, we need to do everything we can now uh, to, get, to get ourselves ready to get transmission as low as we possibly can for this virus. Um, uh, the best way to, to prevent mutant strains from emerging is to slow transmission uh, and to do that without the vaccine, you know, through other measures. So, you know, I've, of course, talked about testing very much. I think uh, President-elect uh, uh, Biden will be really pushing for testing as a means to control this virus in a way that we haven't seen yet. Um, and, and we'll also continue seeing all of the other uh, public health approaches continue and, and I hope that we can just get transmission down as much as possible and reduce the likelihood of a, of a bad mutant uh, coming about. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks very much. I too had a question about the variants. Um, I'm wondering specifically if you think that the travel restrictions um, that are being imposed, um, the UK imposed some restrictions against um, Portugal and Latin America over the Brazil um, variant that has emerged. Do travel restrictions in this context have any benefit? Uh, this is like deja vu. Um, you know, it's too little too late, I suppose. Um, my feeling is the variant, it's already spreading. You know, it's it, it can have some small benefit at this point, but um, you know, maybe we end up getting small numbers of people and from from uh, abroad who are contributing to the pool, if you will, here. But at the end of the day, the, these variants are already um, almost likely in the United States. Um, uh, and if they're not in the United States, uh, then we're, we're a country with some of the highest rates of uh, infections in the world. Uh, so we can breed our own variants that are that are just as bad. Uh, or worse. So I think um, you know travel restrictions might be useful for for just mitigating spread overall. But if it's in an attempt to really stop um, one of these strains from sort of spreading into the United States or outside, I think a lot of that has already been uh, has the, the sort of the, the ship has sailed there already. Thank you so much. Next question. Good morning, Dr. Mena. I My question has to do with the distribution of the vaccine and especially the, the different, the, the, the widely differential rates between states. Uh, West Virginia is leading the country 
in, uh, in distribution of the vaccine. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts as to why that might be happening and what other states can learn from West Virginia. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't been following uh, each individual state um, uh, closely enough to, to really um, be able to comment much on what, what they're doing. Um, uh, I do think that we have to ensure that we're not, um, uh, you know, a common theme in this pandemic has been uh, regulating uh, ourselves into the ground and, um, and trying to uh, do things, you know, so not, not, not by the book, but trying to follow every little guideline so much that we lose track of why the guidelines are even there and we start actually doing damage to, uh, to our ability to, uh, you know, whether it's get tests out or get vaccines out. Um, so I think sometimes you just have to put systems in place that will accelerate uh, vaccines just to get them out to as many people as possible with uh, some priority list, but make sure that you're just kind of not overthinking it, I suppose. Um, and uh, I don't know if, if, if West Virginia is doing something that's just very aggressive and using you know, the, right, the right kinds of minds, whether it's generals in the army or something to really um, organize. Uh, but, um, but I would say that I think we have overthought too many aspects of, of this to our own peril. And um, we can't overthink this one. We just have to do it. I know one thing they've been doing there is they created their own uh, distribution network using their own pharmacies instead of relying on CVS and Walgreens. What do you make of that? If it's working, I think it's great. Um, I mean, CVS and Walgreens have an amazing reach, and so they're a good um, sort of one-stop shop, if you will, to you know talk to a few people and get uh, get a vaccine distributed to the whole uh, country or within a state to the whole state, but. Uh, if you have a more malleable system, for example, because it's a smaller chain, but it's uh, across the, the whole state or multiple, uh, multiple pharmacies, uh, by all means, I think that we should be using uh, grassroots efforts, if you will. We should be using big chains. We should be using all whatever is fastest, whatever is going to be the most nimble, and where we will get people who are dedicated to just helping with this cause of, of keeping the population safe. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi. Uh, I have a question regarding the debate about whether or not it, it is advisable to follow the UK approach in postponing the second dose of the vaccines. Uh, there has been a lot of talk about, post, about a possible risk of promoting vaccine-resistant mutations this way. Uh, and, uh, and I sort of think, uh, I, I, I sort of wonder what you, you think about that, because this now seems to be the most effective argument against the British strategy. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I think what I'm specifically wondering the most about is if you have any thoughts about how the way the, uh, the increased, one should think that increased natural infection, in, infections, uh, if we do not do it this way, may also elevate the general risk of mutations. So I, I was wondering if you have any thoughts about how the way these concerns against each other. Uh, yeah, this is a this is a great um, a great question. Um, 
I would say that uh, the whether or not whether or not a single dose, you know, there's this been there's been this idea of partial immunity that's been kicked around, mm -hmm. um, and I think that this is largely an error um, to assume to really put so much weight on this. And uh, the reason it's being utilized as a talking point or as a as a comment is. Uh, a comparison of this to antibiotics. And people know, for example, that if you don't take your whole course of antibiotics, you have a chance of breeding uh, a mutant strain that can resist your antibiotics. Uh, immunity is different because the denominator with immunity is everyone who doesn't have any immunity or who doesn't have sterilizing immunity. So we can't forget that if you are wholly unvaccinated, if you don't have any vaccines yet, you are going to also have to pass through a period of partial immunity. Um, and so, you know, the the question then is, you know, does having uh, does starting with some boost of part or some some partial immunity, if you will, and lower affinity antibodies from a single dose. Does, you know, when you actually do get the infection, are you able to tackle the virus so much faster that that outweighs any risk of putting the virus uh, into an environment where low affinity antibodies already exist? If you haven't had any vaccines yet, you're going to also have to go through this whole period of low affinity antibody maturation um, but the benefit is that you'll do it in the context of innate immunity and interferons and other antibodies that might be helping out. So it's really a balance. And I would say that we don't, we, we just don't have the right uh, models built to understand which is going to be more dangerous. But I think that what has been missing from the conversation is this idea that everyone who is naive, who has zero vaccines, will still have to go through the same process. And they'll be going through this partial immunity the whole time that they're tackling the virus versus somebody who's got one vaccine, they might be able to tackle the virus very quickly. We already saw, for example, that efficacy rose uh, to over 90% by the time people were getting, were, were just about to get the second dose. So we saw just how powerful a single dose can be. And there's been a lot of, misinformation out there in, in the media talking about 50% efficacy before dose two. That's, that's just, that number should have never been put out by, um, by the drug, by the pharmacies, uh, by those papers. Uh, you have to look at the first dose efficacy after 12 or 12 days or so. And if you look after that, it's about 92% efficacy before dose two. Um, how long that lasts? Is unclear, but if you can stretch it out, you know the 21 and 28 day window was only chosen, you know, for the most part, to accelerate the trials. It wasn't a biological property. It wasn't because you know that was necessarily going to be the best timing. It was because they wanted to get the trials over and done with, and not waiting an extra two months for the for the results to come in. So um, I think um, you know I, I I think the UK is taking a strategy that is. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, it's not going to be the strategy for everyone. They're banking on the idea that there's going to be more supply. And that's an okay, that's an okay uh, uh, decision because if there's not more supply, then we're all in a much worse place than we thought.
Um, so I think it's okay to assume that the supply will be there. And uh, we just have to um, get as many vaccines. There's no reason to have vaccines at the moment sitting in freezers, not going out, if you can get them out to people. Thank you. Um, uh, I don't know if, if the, if the up upcoming results from the Johnson's and Johnson's study, uh, who has a one-dose vaccine candidate, I don't know if that could possibly shed some light on the matter, at least when it comes to the, the AstraZeneca vaccine that is built on, on the same technology. Yeah, it will be it'll be interesting to see. I mean, they are different people. Some critics will say that, um, and, and rightly so, that the mRNA vaccines maybe um, more than an adenovectored vaccine require a boost. But, you know, it's very unclear to me, for example, the mRNA vaccines are doing so well, the, um, the two-dose regimen of AstraZeneca was much lower efficacy than even the single dose appeared to be from the mRNA vaccines. So we have to, we have to really be... Uh, my, my one recommendation to policymakers and, and others is to, to keep our eye on the ball and make sure we are optimizing at every step for public health and not getting lost in the weeds of trying to optimize individual immune responses at the expense of stopping this pandemic. I think we just need to remember that. Thanks. Next question. Hey, Michael, thanks for doing this um, every week as you do. Uh, my question actually it, uh, kind of follows up with um, what uh, John Tima just asked. Uh, I guess it's more specific to the US, you know, recently health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar told states to use up their second dose, um, or the reserve of second doses to speed up vaccination and relying on manufacturing to fill in those second doses later once they're available. Um, the federal government, as we learned today, I'm not sure if you saw this, but uh, the Washington Post pu um, published that the federal government is not holding reserve, I guess they've already given them to the states. So what do you think of states going ahead and doing this, just using up their entire reserve um, relying on manufacturing and the logistical infrastructure to send them their new allocations uh, as soon as they can to fill in people who um, have gotten that first dose. Uh, and, and I guess given our current infrastructure, would that even be possible to achieve logistically? Um, you know, if we just gave out everything and try to find people later, uh, are there any risks associated with that? Uh, I, I would say that uh, ideally what will happen is we will go through the reserves as, sort of in real time and that by, you know, if somebody is slated to come back at day 28, and that they will do that. They'll come back at day 28 and there will be a dose for them. Now, if there's really no dose for them, I have a feeling that most people will, um, you know, because they've been given out, we have to look at what that, that might sound bad for the person who isn't getting their second dose. But again, these, these trials, while they looked at only days 21 and 28, uh, that doesn't mean that those were the optimal time points. Uh, the optimal time points very well could be two or three months delayed. Uh, we Most vaccine schedules are much more separated. This was again, uh, you know, unfortunately this is once again regulation and um, sort of driving policy uh, and public health decision-making rather than the other way around. We should be using everything we know about immunology, everything we know from the past about vaccines to say, look, 
let's be real for a moment. We know that immunity isn't going to go up to 90% before dose two and then just drop off. It's going to probably keep going up and it's going to level off for a while and then maybe it will wane over a couple of months or more. And so uh, from a, I think the logistics challenge is the most important one that you bring up. Uh, I'm not concerned about the biology here. I think people's immune systems will still boost just fine uh, if they get it at eight weeks or, or, or even 12 weeks. Um, but making sure that people know how to get it and making sure that if somebody comes in for a vaccine at day 28 and it's not there, that there is a, um, a messaging system of some sort to let communities at a local level know uh, if you received your first dose, you know, sign up again. We got a new million doses in yesterday. Um, we will be uh, supporting the rollout of those to second dose people uh, you know, this week. I think we just have to ensure that those pieces are in place. Unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of thought uh, by our current administration put into the public health aspect of vaccines. There was a lot of thought put into the biology and the medicine and the trials. And then once again, when it came to the public health part, the, the boots on the ground distribution, uh, it just wasn't well thought out. And so now it's up to the states to really um, try to be malleable, try to uh, be uh, nimble and adaptable and figure out how to do this quickly. We have to do it. Uh, you know, I hope maybe we can take lessons from West Virginia. Maybe we can take lessons from Israel. Um, there are places on earth that have now uh, really been good at getting vaccines out efficiently. Um, and uh, and, I, and I, I think that this is an okay approach, but we do have to be careful to make sure that people understand how to get a second dose if their, uh, if their dose sort of that they were expecting isn't available on time. Um, so my, I guess my follow-up to that would be, would you, no, if people come back and the second dose isn't there, I mean, would you be worried that uh, they might lose faith in, in the system? They'd be like, oh, you know, I, I tried to come back and uh, the second dose wasn't there. So, you know, why would I try again <laughs> or something? Um, you know, this is this airs on the same type of, you know, I, I keep hearing people say this, especially the same kind of people who said, if masks aren't perfect, you know, people are going to lose trust. If tests aren't perfect, people are going to lose trust. We keep saying this argument. It's like it's this weird, it's this weird straw man argument that everyone likes to put up. Um, I don't understand it. The American public is plenty smart. You know, if you tell them sorry, uh, your vaccine will be in next week, they can get that. They they don't. You know, I think that we're better than this as a country. We can understand the public. Uh, is not a bunch of one and a half year olds. Um, the public can understand these pieces. Uh, and so I, I'm, uh, I think this is this idea that you bring up, which, which has been raised, as you say, by, by many public health people and physicians and others and policy people just, but it fits in line with this persistent assumption that Americans will just throw their hands up and, and you know, put their nose up at a, at a second dose if it's not there right on time when they need it. I think that we are better than that. We can uh, use messaging. We can get radio ads placed and TV ads and you know Twitter, whatever it might be, to let people know in a targeted fashion, 
hey, your community is, has done an exceptional job at getting first doses of vaccines out. You're all safer and better for it. Uh, what it means is that you will get your second dose two weeks later. And we just, uh, we put those in the, in the newspapers. We get people to understand what's going on. I think a lot of people already do uh, understand that. So um, these are the kind of barriers that frustrate me maybe more than anything else because these are person issues. We can deal with these. Um, we just have to get the right people to help. This isn't something that an epidemiologist should be dealing with or even commenting on. Um, you know, I mean, not that it was bad that you asked the question, but you know, this is something that I want to get you know a major marketing agency uh, on board and say, hey, you know, they're the people who know how to talk to the public, and we should be bringing the these marketing agencies on at every step throughout this pandemic to help. Um, you know, bring in the real experts who have a lot of experience changing the hearts and minds of Americans. Um, we continue to not use that very powerful tool, probably because it doesn't look like a public health tool. It's not somebody with a PhD, it's somebody who has been in marketing their whole life. Um, but that's the type of, that's the way we should be communicating with the American public. We should have real partnerships built here. Um, and I think we can get over these types of issues. Um. I, uh, I don't want to take up too much time from, from the other journalists on this call, but um, you know, I wanted to ask if there are any dangers to not kind of trying this plan. You know, if we if we move too slowly with the vaccine rollout uh, and, and too cautiously, is there a danger that the virus might mutate away from the vaccine because we're creating this selective pressure on it, um, and then end up having to start over? And of course, I mean, obviously, it might it might cost lives, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly, I would say that the that in all of this, um, you know, a failure to act quickly and aggressively with this virus is causing lives. It's been causing lives from day one in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, I believe pretty firmly that we should be doing everything we can to optimize the vaccine rollout as much as possible. Uh, if we if we sit around and try to get every individual the best. Uh, immune response we can at the expense of most people having zero, uh, that is, that's going to be a problem. Uh, I mean, the, the, the math is really simple here. And this is, it just gets so much like this antigen testing that, you know, the testing problem that I've been talking about. You know, in this case, the math is simple that, that you either get, if you have two people, you could vaccinate both of them, but you're holding one vaccine back for this person to get two vaccines and this person gets zero. Scale that up to a hundred people or a thousand people. At that point, uh, you know the maximum efficacy at the population level you can have the absolute maximum is fifty percent efficacy. Now, if you give each of them one dose, maybe your maximum efficacy averaged across all those people is ninety percent. Maybe it's eighty-five, but it's probably going to be a lot better than fifty. So these are the ways that we need to start thinking about all, all of this, whether it's testing whether it's masks or whether it's vaccines through a population lens and, and through a, what, I, what I call, a, I, I wanna create a new field called public health engineering. You know, it's a way to start thinking about public health, not through this medical lens, but through engineering lens to optimize systems. And, uh, and so I do think, you know, part of this uh, to get to your question is if we act slowly, if we try to do this too methodically, if we, if we focus too much on optimizing every individual immune response and doing it perfect, 
28 days or, you know, that is, that, that's not how we win a pandemic that's killing 4,000 people every single day in the United States. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, thank you so much for doing this. I know you've touched on vaccine rollout a little bit. Here in Florida, where I am, you know, we have 67 different counties, each have a, a dozen different rules on how to roll it out. You have churches, public, CVS, Walgreens, health departments, hospitals. There's no one plan to ensure everyone is going to get a shot. Uh, multiply, multiply that by 50. Some would say the vaccine rollout in the U.S. is quite a mess right now. Now you have President-elect Joe Biden who's saying we have to federalize this in his new plan that came out last night and make it more simple. How important is that to get more people vaccinated? Well, uh, I think it's extremely important. Uh, I think we need to use, we, I mean, at the end of the day to get a shot into somebody's arm though, you need people to do it. You know, you can't send one message from the White House, but um, what has been lacking uh, in an extraordinary fashion this entire pandemic has been, uh, has been federal leadership. The, the, this virus doesn't care about borders, really doesn't care about borders um, at all. And, uh, and to tackle it, we need coordinated action. Just like, in an, just like in a war, if you have a whole bunch of soldiers doing random movements, uh, you're never gonna win that war. It needs to be coordinated and just small amounts of coordination go a really long way. Um, so I think that what President-elect Biden is really getting at here is uh, we need federal oversight or we need federal um, sort of plans. We need plans so that we're not asking every county or even every state to come up with their own plans and you know, reinvent the wheel. Uh, we need to get, uh, you know, create a central plan that takes a, a lot of pieces into account. It takes the national supply of these vaccines into, into account. And, uh, and the timetables for that each state will be able to get them that only can be answered at the federal level and, and really pushes for a national federal policy to make it all work. Um, eventually it will have to rely on the states to, to really carry it out uh, independently or individually rather, but not independently of the federal government. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hello, okay. Professor, can you hear me? Yes. Yep. All right. Sorry about that. You've already gotten a couple of questions about, you know, the different vaccine rollout rates between the states. And we as reporters, we like to focus on a horse race whenever we can. Are we right to do so in this case? If we, if my state's trailing West Virginia, um, does it really matter if my state's a few weeks or a few months behind another state in terms of saving lives and stopping the pandemic? You, you, you've said faster is better, but why is faster, better? Uh, well, faster is better in this case because uh, the quicker we can get people vaccinated, the quicker we can start to achieve herd effects. Um, uh, we have huge numbers of people dying. Uh, and so if we can, uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't have uh, a feeling one way or the other if the media should be following one state you know, versus the next and treating it like a race, but if that helps states to, um, to, to do it um, more, to put more effort in and do it more quickly, uh, great. I think most states probably have plenty of, uh, 
of reason to do as fast as they can at the moment economically anyway. Um, uh, but certainly just getting, getting vaccines out faster means that uh, fewer people will die. Uh, if I could snap my fingers right now and say that I want half of America to be uh, vaccinated, uh, then I would absolutely do that because that would um, you know, generally stop the spread of the virus at the moment. So, um, so the quicker we can do this, the quicker we will start to see cases. You know, every person that's vaccinated who hasn't been infected yet is one, uh, is one less person to potentially die from this virus. And I want to just follow up on something you mentioned about the second dose timing. You said in the trials that were done, the timing was set mainly by the, the, the pharmaceutical companies to get the trials done faster. And if I understood you correctly, we might get to 90 plus immunity um, with just one dose if we wait long enough. Um, how will we know if a, that second dose is really necessary? Since I think Pfizer and the other companies have decided to drop the double-blind studies, will we really know if that second dose is necessary? Scientifically. Well, this is, um, I think there are some correlates of immunity that we can look at to say, look, we know that if you get a second dose, you boost your antibodies even more. And that's generally thought to be good. Uh, but this is exactly a, a number of weeks ago, I, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, uh, specifically calling for these studies, you know, had we started at the and we started the day we wrote that op-ed, and we could have, we still can, uh, you know, we would be a couple of months away from knowing a lot more than we currently do. Um, you know, and it, these don't have to be super expensive studies. I wish that we would start them today. What we should be doing is we should get people who have had a single dose already, maybe a month ago, and, and are about to go get a second dose, have them volunteer to not get their second dose, have them volunteer to participate in a trial. We can do this utilizing the, the current rollout of the vaccine as our study. You know, maybe it's people like me in pathology uh, where we don't really see patients very frequently, um, but we have gotten vaccines. I didn't get my vaccine, but that's only, that's because I never go into the hospital these days. I'm always here if you can, uh, you, you might not be surprised by that, but. Um, you know, but you could take people like me who don't see patients, who have access to a vaccine, many who have already gotten their first vaccine, and, and ask them to just forego getting their second. Now, we could do that. We could then test their antibodies uh, on a regular basis after month one. And then we could give them a boost, say, at month two or month three, and, and look to see, do their antibodies boost in the way that uh, somebody at day 21 or 28 boosts? If we did that with just a small number of people, just 100 people, we would get a much, much better idea. But we're not even doing the smallest studies to understand and the ramifications. This again goes towards this whole problem where we have no ability to optimize the right things. Uh, and in this case, optimizing public health. Uh, if we wanted to optimize it, we would be doing these studies because the ramifications of, of taking a bit of time right now and a small amount of resources and, and doing a study of 10,000 people, you know, or 100 people, depending on the study design, could potentially mean billions more people get vaccinated this year. Um, I mean, that's not an, that's, that's not an exaggeration. Um, but we, we, just aren't, we just aren't doing it. And I, and I think that it's a travesty that we're not running these trials, that we didn't run them from the beginning. Uh, we, should have, we should very 
the moment we saw that efficacy was staying high for dose one before people got dose two, or was getting high anyway, not necessarily staying, we don't know the durability, but that's why we need the trial. And if we're not doing it, we're really just, um, there's, no, there's, there's no good argument to be made to not do that trial. It's, um, it's, it's sheer lack of will and laziness. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Next question. Good morning. Hope you're doing okay. Um, I'm going to ask the obvious question, which is what do you think about the Biden administration and their plans? Are they going to fix all of these problems you just articulated and, and your testing issues? Uh, I think that uh, I, I feel very, very positive about um, what I've been seeing, you know, so far from uh, Biden's administration or incoming administration. Uh, I've personally um, you know, had the opportunity to speak on a fairly frequent basis with some folks in, in the, the um, external task force. Um, and you know, I, I think that he has built a team and, and, uh, and Kamala built a team that is based around science. You know, we are going to see a whole different era of tackling this virus when this new administration comes on board. I think they are, they are showing clear signals that they want to be aggressive. They recognize that this pandemic is absolutely priority number one, and it's, and it's holistic. It's getting, uh, getting money into people's pockets who don't have uh, income because of this virus. It's putting the right amounts of money where it needs to be. One of the major um, pieces he put out uh, yesterday was uh, $50 billion for testing, specifically calling out the need for rapid testing and to scale up rapid testing and get it out to America. I've spoken at length about how useful rapid testing when done appropriately can be. And uh, the Biden administration is clearly um, sending signals that they, not even sending signals, they're just overtly putting it in their plan that this is going to be a priority. The testing we've been doing hasn't worked. Rec they are now recognizing that the testing we need are rapid tests. They are tests that will give people answers in moments, not days. And that makes them and can be distributed and, and sold very cheap and inexpensive, made in the tens of millions a day. We'll see companies uh, like, like this company that's providing tests for the UK, Innova, they are scaling to literally tens of millions that just one company will produce in a single day, every day moving forward. So the scaling is getting there. And I think the Biden administration is recognizing that this is a powerful tool and they're taking a reasoned scientific approach to thinking through what are they, what are going to be their first steps when they get into, uh, when they get into office and into power here. How will they be able to really make a differentiating impact on this pandemic? And I, I feel very positive that, uh, positively that that this is the right administration to try to tackle this virus. Great, definitely thought of you, and I read that in the uh, in the Biden plan. Um, uh, there's another study or another fact that we don't know yet that I was wondering um, about transmission. How do you think, I know there was one study that wasn't funded um, to help understand transmission. What do you think can be done once vaccinated to, to, to understand whether, whether we can still transmit this virus? 
This is another thing. We should have been doing this all along. It's a travesty that we didn't. Um, the reason for anyone who hasn't followed this, the reason we need to know if a virus, if a vaccine inhibits or stops people from transmitting, is because it makes all the difference in the world towards our efforts to utilize vaccines to achieve herd immunity. If the virus, uh, sorry, if the vaccine um, prevents us from getting severe disease, but still the virus can grow in our nose and mouth and, and be able to spread, uh, then we are not going to, we're going to have to vaccinate you know, many, many more people be, before we reach herd immunity. Uh, my expectation, my full expectation is that this virus, I keep saying that, this vaccine uh, will elicit uh, reductions in transmission. But we don't know how much. We've seen in monkey models and things like that, that people have lower viral loads. And we know that lower viral loads generally reflect lower transmissibility for obvious reasons. Um, but will that last? Now, my biggest concern, I have a number of concerns, um, but uh, my biggest concern is that we have only studied these vaccines in, in terms of our formal trials up through uh, a few months to two to three months after dose two. But there's reason to believe that after two or three months, you, all of your plasma blasts that you have, all of these cells that are producing a lot of antibodies, they sort of have to die off. They are temporary cells. And so although the, vi the vaccines have been doing a very good job at stopping, uh, stopping infection, uh, symptomatic disease, they hopefully during that period of time are stopping transmission that we did not look at it uh, closely. Um, you know, one question is, will they continue stopping transmission at month three and four and five and six after all of your frontline cells, if you will, that are spewing out tons of antibodies die off? And we just don't know. Uh, so I think we should be doing those studies as well. And again, it doesn't need to be these quarter of a billion dollar studies. We could just be taking people today saying, hey, you've gotten a vaccine. Let's start swabbing you daily, you know, and keep the swabs in your freezer and every three weeks mail them in, uh, you know, to, to this company, we'll, we'll run PCR tests on them. You know, whatever it might be, we can do this very cheap and inexpensive and, and nimbly and quick. And, and it would put us in a much better position to know what we're dealing with in the future, um, that we're not doing it um, or it's not being supported widely uh, in the US is, is unfortunate. But my guess is other countries will step in and do these trials. It's not too greedy. I have one more question, which is how long do you think the, um, how long do we give the Biden administration to, to, to work? What do you think is the time frame now to make a difference, to expect a difference? Well, uh, well, I think we have to be, you know, we have to be very clear about what the expectations are. Um, uh, I think we can't expect a major shift on day one. Um, uh, that's just not going to happen. But I do think that there is a lot that can be done over the first uh, couple of months. You know, presidents like to say what they're going to do in their first hundred days in office. I think that is a, you know, it's a, it's always ambitious. It's always accelerated. But in this case, with this pandemic, I think that there is a tremendous amount that this president can do, and the the full administration that's coming on board uh, with a hundred days in office. Uh, in that first window of time, I think that they can, if I was advising the president, you know, right now directly, I would say, 
you know, step number one is take some of that 50 billion that has just set aside essentially um, designated for testing, get it to these companies to scale up as quickly as possible. They're doing a good job on their own, but if the government helps them to scale, that also encourages them to keep their costs low later on. So that will put us in a good position to negotiate good prices with these companies. So we're not spending $20 per test when we could be spending $2. As soon as scaling is getting going, we know that we have a lot of these tests available already. We need to convene the CDC and the, and the Biden administration. They need to come on board and they need to develop a plan for how exactly these tests will be used. Uh, something akin to the vaccine plans. You know, how will they get out? How are they going to be allocated to states? Is it just going to be money or is it the tests are actually going to be allocated and the federal government buys them? Um, you know, that, that, that plan needs to be put in place very, very early with, with specifics on how people should use them at home, at work, at school, et cetera. And then, you know, after that first, that first piece should take weeks. Uh, and then we should just start seeing these tests get out to the public, get out to the masses. And if the president does that, you know, they can only accelerate vaccines so much. You can't really do much more with masks. You can't do much more with shutting down. I mean, unless we really shut down, but with distancing, these tests are something that Biden can stand up on day one and say, this is our plan. We're gonna scale testing. We're going to create the policy. We're going to get tests to every American household in the next five weeks. And we, if we start seeing these tests actually reach uh, into American households in a short order, which they can, we can start seeing cases plummet. We can start seeing whole communities achieving a herd effects, not herd immunity, but herd effects through the frequent use of these tests. And so, if, and so one of the reasons I like this approach of these tests so much is because they can be scaled and distributed so much easier than any other tool we have. They can be shipped through USPS and Amazon and FedEx and, and UPS to the households of people Again, we can get messaging you know, in place with big media agencies, with news anchors, with everyone else to tell Americans what these tests are about. And if we can do that, we can start to see cases come down dramatically across the country within weeks in a way that vaccines could never do in these first 100 days. So I hope that there is a major investment uh, by the administration to push a plan like this and you know, I'll write it for them, uh, you know, with their if they want. Um, but I don't think it's that hard. It's it's not easy. But you know, we a lot of good people have put a lot of thought into this over the last year, and I think that there are, there are plans that can be put into place very quickly. Okay, thanks. Um, I'm going to kind of piggyback on that really quickly too. Is that uh, fifty billion dollars for rapid tests? Is that what you've been hoping for? Uh, yes, we've been really pushing um, for this uh, for a long time. Uh, ideally, it would be, you know, I don't think all of that will go directly into rapid tests, but certainly um, uh, an initial upfront uh, number of dollars that go directly towards scaling, and then absolutely putting aside a decent amount, maybe it's $20 billion, uh, maybe it's 10, whatever it might be, to get these tests into the homes of all Americans. If we can put numbers like that, you know, ideally it's something on the order of 20 billion could make a major massive difference. So this is exactly what I've been pushing for. I've tried to push for it through Congress, tried to push for it through interactions with senators and 
and current administration. And I think that what we're seeing is uh, this administration, uh, I know knows of this, has heard about it directly and indirectly. Um, and I do believe that, um, I like to believe that some of our efforts are, are paying off um, to, to raise awareness around these crucial tools to create the science that needs to underlie the utilization of them. And now we finally have a, a president uh, who's about to be uh, become president um, that is willing to look at the science and look at things rationally and, and say that this is the right way to go. Thank you. Uh, next question. There we go. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Datomia, for taking my question. So I would like to address the same question that I ask also other scientists. Uh, it's my uh, utopistic question about uh, you know uh, the balance between uh, health and uh, and products of big pharma. So uh, you you were insisting on the fact that we need to uh, um, uh, boost um, vaccine rollout, we need to scale production, we need to make sure that uh, everyone uh, gets uh, first and possibly possibly a second dose of vaccine. So uh, um, one option could be um, basically uh, obliging the pharmaceutical companies to. Uh, to uh, provide uh, licensing, uh, compulsory licensing to third-party manufacturers, so that actually would uh, increase the overall uh, uh, production capacity. Actually, it was it was a, it was a proposal put forward by the by the uh, WHO through the Technology Access Pool, uh, which was uh, actually inviting uh, pharmaceutical companies to basically donate voluntarily uh, technology and uh, intellectual property rights. So far, no big pharma. Um, Basically, um, uh, committed uh, to this uh, technology access pool. I'd like to know uh, your opinion about that, and uh, if you think that uh, the Biden administration should uh, should uh, make resort to the, the Defense Production Act to try to uh, adopt this um, compulsory licensing on uh, pharmaceutical companies producing vaccines. Uh, absolutely, I think so. Um, you know, we we are. Uh, if it means we could improve. Manufacturing. You know, the nice thing about the DPA, the Defense Productions Act, is that uh, it's not just stealing things away from companies. There's usually a fair market price that's paid. And uh, if we can utilize, you know, ideally the companies would do it on their own. Um, but sometimes they need a bit of a push, uh, and that that needs to, you know, we. It's oftentimes that the 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 the, the marketplace does not necessarily align with public health. Um, that's no surprise to anyone, I think. Uh, so this is an approach if we could have uh, increased manufacturing capacity, uh, if it's possible to do, which it's not fully clear, but I believe that it, I believe it, it would be possible to do quite readily. Um, this is the kind of approach that we should be taking. We should be getting the license um, in such a way that, uh, you know, there's temporary licensure, there's uh, there's uh, royalties that are paid, whatever it needs to be, uh, to ensure that we can prioritize public health. Now, at the end of the day, the American public uh, has largely funded huge portions of these vaccines, the R&D for them, uh, whether that's before COVID through NIH grants and taxpayer dollars, which people oftentimes forget how much of, of the research that led to these vaccines and the basic infrastructure development of them is actually taxpayer funded, uh, you know, going back years. And so there's a lot of reason for Americans and for the government to feel okay 
about doing this and really forcing the hand of some of these companies. Um, and, and I think that anything we can do to stop people from dying, it's worthwhile. Uh, nobody's paycheck should come ahead of, uh, of anyone's life. Well, thanks a lot. I have a second uh, technical question. So um, um, governments from uh, Western uh, countries, they put a lot of emphasis on uh, these new fashionable uh, mRNA vaccines, which as I understand that they, they can uh, basically uh, speed up the, 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 uh, the production, uh, the development of vaccine uh, much more than, uh, than, um, than, uh, than uh, traditional vaccines. But then, uh, um, the, the, I mean, the, the, the drawback is that then uh, the logistics uh, is a bit uh, complicated because of uh, uh, the cost storage requirements. And also because this kind of new technology cannot be easily transferred to, to um, middle and uh, low income countries. So I was wondering if uh, in a, with, a, with a view to, uh, to, uh, to uh, the strategy, um, basically aiming to uh, provide the global access and uh, to vaccine and vaccinate the entire world population because the, the South African variant showed that uh, even though we vaccinate Americans, Europeans, we are not uh, uh, safe against the vaccine. We do vaccinate also third countries, third European countries. I was wondering if uh, the international committee uh, should also uh, try to uh, increase funding to traditional vaccines like uh, subunit vaccines, which, uh, as I understand, they are the only vaccine, the only vaccine technology which actually brought to the to the market uh, actual vaccines against hepatitis, against the polio. So all these uh, first generation vaccines were completely forgotten by uh, Western countries. I know that Australia is negotiating with Novavax, which has subunit vaccine. India is uh, is investing on a subunit vaccine. Do you think also the Western countries should do, should do that? Absolutely. I think we we are we are taking an extraordinarily short-sighted view of our vaccine approach. Uh, we've created four vaccines that are generally nearly identical. Uh, to each other in terms of uh, the proteins that people are recognizing, meaning in this case, the spike protein. And again, this is the spike protein from sort of version 1.0 of this virus. Uh, it, it takes one virus somewhere out there in the world in the quadrillions of replicating viruses right now happening every day uh, to potentially escape uh, vaccine-derived immunity in just the right way to you know, set off a whole new pandemic uh, of, uh, of mutants that are generally uh, immune to uh, vaccine-derived immunity or, or can escape it. And so for that reason alone, from a selfish reason, I think uh, Western countries and wealthy countries that have focused so much on the four vaccines that we're producing, spike protein vaccines, we should be absolutely trying to find other approaches and scaling up uh, and accelerating trials for multi-protein vaccines, uh, subunit vaccines, live attenuated vaccines. Uh, we, we need a, a, an armamentarium of vaccines that are not simply the same protein uh, in case this virus does escape. Um, we need to have a backstop. And, uh, and it's also goes into why I have been so uh, adamant about, uh, about testing because these tests, if we had rapid tests out across all of the United States, we can start and stop them with a text message. You know, if a new variant comes up and, uh, and, and an outbreak starts with a, with a variant that is uh, immune to, or that, that can escape immunity from the vaccine, then the best thing we can do 
is immediately start to curb the spread of that. And you know, rapid testing is one way to do that if the if the country is is already conditioned on how to use them and and how to use them fast. So I think everything we can do right now to prevent uh, to to assume that we are going to see new viruses develop that are able to evade immunity. We can hope they won't, but assume they will. Uh, you know, we have the, the global economy and global markets are on the line here, not just, not just lives uh, from the viral uh, infections, but true, true stability of, of, of humans. Uh, so we should be absolutely take, doing everything we can to, uh, to prepare for this. So basically, you meant that uh, uh, some variants of the virus could escape uh, RNA, RNA vaccines, but still could be still uh, neutralized by subunit or other traditional vaccines. Yeah, we can create other vaccines that will um, elicit slightly different um, proteins to bind to whole parts of the virus that aren't um, the spike protein. Uh, we can design them in in, uh, in new, newer and better ways, given what we now know of the virus. Okay, thank you. Uh, next question. Can you hear me? I yes. can. Great. Um, thank you. So we have a situation um, where the staff, the nurses at one county health department say that they will not give the vaccine because um, as they put it, it's only been tested on a couple dozen people and um, the, the manufacturers of the vaccine will not be legally liable if anything goes wrong with it. Um, so the county health department is contracting with nurses outside of the department to give the vaccine. Um, I wonder if you can just, you know, what is your message regarding um, a situation like this and, and, you know, and concerns that some people have that this vaccine isn't safe? Um, you know, the vaccine, we have vaccinated a lot of people at this point, um, millions and millions of people have now been vaccinated. We have seen, um, you know, essentially no serious side effects, no serious adverse effects for the most part. Um, I would say that from a safety perspective, uh, as much due diligence has now been done for this vaccine uh, as as has been done for measles vaccines and anything else. Um, these vaccines are safe. I think people should be should know that um, the, the safety profiles look very good. Um, unfortunately, you know, things like rare uh, allergic responses make headlines these days, uh, but in general, uh, the, 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 the vaccines are as safe as we could ask for. Thank you. Uh, um, you have one, I, I can stand for, for one more moment if you have a question. Sure. Can you, can, can you unmute yourself? I, sorry, one more question. Um, just to follow up what you were saying about the other vaccines. Um, what do you think about others globally? I mean, the US obviously is, is leading, but we're not the only ones with vaccines. What about Sinovac from China, the Russian ones? Uh, there's one in India, at least. Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit hard given what we, you know, given the data that's been put out there, but um, some of them have shown various results. I think of a Sinovac that just came out with a fairly poor efficacy, but that's still needing to be explored more to understand what's, you know, if it is or is not. I, I don't quote me that it was Sinovac. I can't recall exactly. It uh, was. Okay. And um, so I think uh, there are a lot of vaccines that are getting pushed out. You know, at the same time, 
you know, it could be that our vaccines, you know, once we start getting these out into the world, it, it could be that um, our vaccines don't work uh, as well as we are hoping in terms of this 95% efficacy. And um, so we need to take all of it one day at a time uh, in terms of really being willing to look at data in real time and adapt as necessary. I think that certainly there's going to be as good or better vaccines that are produced internationally. Uh, and we should be absolutely keeping our eye on all of those, making sure that we're up to, you know, rest with the best, the best science and the best knowledge of, of what vaccines are doing well, especially as it pertains to some of these other variants that might, may or may not, you know, ultimately escape some level of immunity. Uh, so uh, this is not a time for American exceptionalism to take priority. We need to recognize that uh, there are many, many countries uh, out there doing great work. The U.S. is just one of them, uh, and, and in many ways, our response has been abysmal compared to many of them. Uh, so I would say that we have a lot to learn from other countries, and we should really keep our eye out um, and, and not, not sweep aside um, the results coming from many of these other countries in terms of new vaccines that aren't American-made or supported. Um, they might be there might be a day in the very near future where we are uh, begging China and Russia for um, doses of their vaccines if, uh, if a vaccine you know, does end up escaping uh, immunity through the spike protein. So we have to, we have to keep all, all, all um, doors open, I think. Thank you so much. Have a good day, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Minna, do you have any final thoughts for us? Um, no, I think that's it uh, for now. So I'm just, uh, yeah, thanks everyone for coming. This concludes the January 15th press conference.